The most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Five Eighters, how you doing? This episode with Drew Weatherhead is brought to you by LoanOptions.ai. The website has been completely changed. They've got a new look. This is the place if you are looking for loans in Australia. Are you trying to get a loan for a new car? Are you trying to get a loan for a new endeavor, a new job? Are you trying to get a loan for a jiu-jitsu gym? Or maybe you're trying to get a loan to release your own book like Drew has done. As I said, loanoptions.ai slash 58. Go there, get a business loan, triple your money, win. Let's get back into the episode. It's going to be amazing to have this discussion because I've been wanting to have this discussion with you for a little while now, especially regarding what is conscious, what is reality, what is purpose. Because lately, I don't know, even on my end, I feel like, I've had this weird anxiety. I haven't posted a like proper podcast in a while and I've been wanting to do this one. And, and as I said, I even pulled out a few times because I don't know, I've just felt like even though it's in a like discussion I so want to have because it answers a lot of the questions that, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about, um, I've had this weird anxiety that's like pulled me into a shell. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation with you um, and into the book uh, and yourself moving into Texas. So let's start lighthearted and um, then we can get into the deeper philosophical questions of life, which I really want to get into. Um, so how's been the move, first of all, from Canada to Texas? What's it like living in Texas because we see the podcast scene there, we see the comedy scene there, the jiu-jitsu scenes move to Texas. What's it like uh, living over there? Yeah, so firstly, we're still on the move. I'll be leaving out of Texas in about a month. We do uh, six months up in Canada and six months down the States. But for this six months, we spent almost five of it of that six in Austin. So the Austin area for exactly what you're just saying right there. It is so vibrant right now. Like there are, there are certain cities during certain eras of time that were like, you had to be in New York during the sixties, or you had to be in LA during the eighties. And, you know, they had these uh, time periods that these cultural revolutions happen. And it feels like Austin is going to be the hub. If it isn't already at this point, you've got Joe Rogan, you've got Elon Musk, you've got Lex Friedman, you've got all of these people that are doing all these massive cultural shifting things that are all centered around here. Speaking of jujitsu, you've got Danaher, you've got Gordon Ryan, you've got beat, you've got Tim Kennedy. You've got just, the list goes on and on and on for what is kind of a middle of the road population wise city in the largest state in the U S at least in the contiguous U S and it's just, it, 
I think it had a lot to do with the pressures of the pandemic that pushed people from the bluest of blue cities on the coasts inland towards, I guess, a blue reservoir in a red area where they could get away with being um, left-leaning, but in a red area that defended their rights. It's crazy because the jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu is blown up, especially especially in Texas, that little that little hub well, with you know new wave jiu-jitsu and B-teams going at each other. The scene's really blown up. Um, I got some rapid-fire jiu-jitsu questions for you if you want to start that way. Oh, good. Yeah, hit me, hit me. All right, all right. So here's some rapid-fire questions. Now, does the Because Jiu-Jitsu page believe Nicky Rod greased? Uh the page will meme it to death. So yes, we're going to grease meme forever and ever because it's just too easy. Uh, for myself, I'm a little on the fence, but I could see it being more possible than not. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Does the Because Jiu-Jitsu page believe Gordon Ryan pulled out of the Penna match because he needed a poop or he wasn't prepared? Oh, good question. Uh, again, I will meme the, the funniest thing, whatever is the funniest thing. I'll probably actually make fun of them both, but you can't not make jokes about somebody pulling out because of a tummy ache. You have to do that. It's just, it's part of the job of being a comedian. So yeah, of course I'm going to tummy ache meme him and, um, no, but realistically I can, from, I, I do believe that he is an excruciating pain to have to back out because he won ADCC with a broken hand. You know, he's got all sorts of different uh, records of him fighting crippled in different ways. So it had to be pretty extreme in my opinion. I don't think he's underprepared. Does the Because Jiu-Jitsu page believe that Russians can't submit anyone? <laughs> in MMA, um, they can submit anyone. In straight grappling, they have a real hard time because they like to be able to pound somebody until they just give up a submission. All right. This one's a, a, little, a little in... Jiu-jitsu nerdy because this girl's on the come up. She's just been signed by New Age Jiu-jitsu, New Wave Jiu-jitsu. Uh, she's uh-huh. really, uh, yeah, on the come up. Does the Because Jiu-jitsu page believe that Helena is actually Dana Her's biological daughter? <laughs> One of many, probably. <laughs> <laughs> from the from the rumors I hear coming from the Dana Her rumor mill, I, I think that he spread his seed far and wide. <laughs> Uh, too good, mate. Too good. And what do you think of that um, Nicky Rod and Penna match? You know, it's it's basically what you would expect. I didn't expect that either of them would get a finish. Well, I, I I'll put it this way: I didn't think Nicky would get a finish against Penna. That's basically impossible as far as a stylistic matchup is concerned. He might win on points. Otherwise, no. Penna would have to get to Nicky's back to be able to choke him, which he almost did a couple times. But he couldn't get there, so he couldn't win. And that was just what it was. It was going to come down to decision. It just had to. In the end, because um, of because of the positional, like he he did the omoplata to go to the back. He attempted a black back take quite a few times. He did have a little footlock of his own. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Positionally, I feel like he he almost got to positions, but that's almost doesn't get you points. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, in my opinion, I don't know. I thought he won, but the the internet is all Nicky Rod at the minute. 
it, this is the thing is I don't fully understand the rule set when it comes to what criteria I'm looking at for judging because I'm not a judge. It's not I, I'm supposed to be entertained. I'm not really paying attention to the nuances when it comes to the rules. Like what is more important, somebody on top trying to pass or the person preventing them from passing? What is more important, diving on a submission or just about taking the back or the mount? You know, like it's it, and and there's no right answer. The right answer actually is depending on the format, which I don't fully understand as far as being a ref or sorry, a judge is concerned. So I don't know. I don't really, I'm more happy that there's more of a story about let's do it again than to try to split hairs over who you thought won. Mm, Yeah. No, I would love to see it again with Nikki Rod having a bit more of a, of a camp. um, Yeah. Would, would be really interesting, but Gordon Ryan then leaving for Kazakhstan and Dubai mm-hmm. just right after doesn't really make sense. So uh, I think the the food in those countries might not, you know, agree with his stomach. <laughs> but, yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think <clears throat> it's kind of hard to tell psychologically because what you see of Gordon online, I don't think you can take at face value. Yeah, no. Nah. So, so I don't know. Um, there's always a possibility that he's not psychologically as fit as he's making himself seem. Um, but it just doesn't track historically because he's beaten everybody there is to beat, including Pena in his last match. So I don't know. I don't see the running scared story really sticking right now. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think the, the, what's weird about that little, uh, beef is the, like Nikki Ryan being at B team, like, and then Craig Jones coming back from Australia and his first post is with Nikki Ryan after Gordon Ryan just went at Craig Jones. So the first thing that Craig Jones posted was with his brother and then them taking a picture with the pizza as well, which was something that Gordon and Nikki did in New York. That just feels weird to me, like your biological brother being on the enemy side. Um, I I myself wouldn't do it, Um, but – you know, he's also in business with them, right? He's he went into business with them before this this whole thing took place. So, but that's that's the weirdest part of this all the back and forth banter. I reckon it's fun. It's entertaining. It sells tickets. It gives them views. Um, it, it also grows both the gyms as well. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I like the entertainment. I really do. That that little bit is just. If it's all real, you know, there's also the conspiracy that it, from the start they they broke apart just to create this eventually because uh, that was the talks at the start was that they were going to break apart and then, you know, go at each other and that'll be the two teams in jiu-jitsu and, you know, they'll, you know, grow the sport, make the most money, whatever. Um, but if it's not and it's real th- Nicky Ryan there is just – it's just weird to me. I don't um, – yeah, I feel. I'll, I, I'm not going to be the one to spread rumors, but I've talked to the people in question, actually several of them on both sides. And I, as much as I would love for it to be a WWF thing that like Vince McMahon is planning these two teams to just be their rivals, which just pumps up the whole sport. And it is doing that, but um, they legitimately don't like each other. And that is split wow. right down the family bloodline too. like Nikki and Gordon do not get along. They really do not get along. Yeah, that makes it even more weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I saw. I also saw Family, you. Man. I also saw you in Tenth Planet. I think I seen you because I watched the Tenth Planet. Um, uh, their uh, what is it? Internal comps that they do. Uh-huh. Um, yep, and you yep. were there in a few of them, mate, making a cameo. 
<laughs> yeah, I was kind of hanging out. I uh, I hit one last time I was down in the States in LA at Eddie's headquarters there. Yeah. And um, I've also been cross-training while I'm in Austin every now and again at the 10th Planet here where it's just, that's a really cool gym, to be honest. Most of the 10th Planets I've been to have been fantastic in their own way. It really is a really open community. But that one's kind of like this interesting neutral middle ground between B-Team and New Wave, where in the middle you've got 10th Planet, which of course is all no-gi. And they're open to anybody from any team to come in. And on their open mats, which they have Saturday and Sunday, three-hour open mats, there's like 150 people from all sorts of different gyms that show up every single week. And there'll be Nicky Rod there. There'll be J-Rod. There'll be other guys from B-Team. There'll be people from all different teams that meet. And there's really no politics at that particular spot. It's this interesting neutral territory. That's that's some pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's, that's really cool. Um, Okay, moving on from jiu-jitsu, uh, getting into the book, Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. Um, so you're trying to answer these particular questions. Uh, what Negative. Negative? Negative. I'm trying okay. to expose these questions to people for them to find their own answers. It's, it's right. an ambitious thing to tell people I know what is consciousness, what is reality, and what is purpose. So that was never the goal. The goal here is to open an exploratory endeavor. So I say at the beginning of the book in the epilogue mm-hmm. that this is a this is an uh, action of exploration, not explanation. So if you're looking for answers, you might as well put it down. This is about opening up Pandora's box. Got you. And what drove you down this path? So I, I remember we discussed a bit that you were looking to write a book with having these three pillars. So why these particular three pillars and what drove you to write specifically about them? Well, since I started um, doing the Social Disorder podcast, which has been just over a year now, and I've been doing it full time. So it's five episodes a week. So at this point, about a year later, there's almost 250 episodes and that's not to brag and it's not to boast. It's just to say that the, the total amount of time and effort that I put into that has been a massive amount of my um, mental effort and time spent on anything. So this weird thing happened about halfway through around August of last year where I was coming up on 100 episodes. And in that period, there was so many different people that I had talked to that come from different worldviews, that come from different geography, that come from different lifestyles, that come from different religions – all of these things melted together in this melting pot that that existed up in my head. And I can't really, maybe it's my ADD, but I can't turn it off. And so all of these conversations are conversing with themselves up here. And I'm starting to see like patterns forming and uh, correlations and similarities. And this whole, I guess, this garden started blossoming in my head in this way that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't trying to, but at a certain point, it was like, bursting out my ears and I had to get it down somehow. I had to track this stuff and I needed to get it out. First of all, for myself, for the sake of maybe catharsis or maybe just because there is so much here that needs to be explored and I want other people to see what's going on. But it was never an ambition of mine to be an author ever. I've never been a writer at anything. And it's interesting now that I am an author and I talk to people are like, man, I always wanted to write a book. I'm so glad that you got yours done. I'm like, I never wanted to write a book, but I couldn't help but get it done because just the process of that continual uh, musing, that continual work, that inner contemplation and the honesty that comes with it, dude, it is, it's its own power. And I really do feel like there were thoughts that were using me as their pen. And you got it done, which 
amazes me. You got it done, is this correct, four months? Yeah, about four months of writing, two months to publish. What, 62,000 words? Uh, about 67, yeah. 67,000 words in four months. It's, was it, what was the process of drafting? Like, did you eliminate things like, because to me, it seems I've never written a book. I'm I'm not too sure the processes of writing a book, but what, what was it like to cut out some thoughts from the book, cut out some ideas? Um, I guess it's not frameworks, but what was the drafting process to the finished product? You know, this is a question that I get often when people who are either in the process of writing a book or had ambition to do it ask, what is your process? It's like the actor question. What's your process <laughs> to, to turn into the Joker or whatever? You know, they have this, they want a magical answer. And honestly, um, I didn't, there was a process to it, but it wasn't a prerequisite to writing. It was almost like just a necessity because it had to be written. And so in that way, I just broke it down as simply as I possibly could, where I knew I was going to have three um, major focuses, consciousness, reality, and purpose. And within each of those, I'm going to have three subcategories. And within each of those subcategories, I'm going to have three chapters. So I knew before I ever put the first word down, I was going to have 27 chapters because it'd be nine on consciousness, nine on reality, and nine on purpose. And then at that point, I just had to fill in the blanks of what each chapter to sort of start the question and leave the question by the end of uh, the first to the ninth chapter of each of those major topics. And it basically, like I said, like I, I wish I could say that I'm a genius, but I just sat down and it, these ideas used me. I, it sounds crazy. It sounds uh, mystic or metaphysic, but really like there were times when I couldn't write certain days where I, I was traveling or something and it bothered me that I couldn't write. And it's not because I love writing. It's because I had these thoughts that had to get out. And then when I finally would get the time to do it, it was like a waterfall coming out of me. Like I'd, I'd write 3000 words in an afternoon. So it's, it's hardly something that I can tell people do what I did because I don't even know um, how I did what I did, to be honest. It sounds stupid, but that's the truth. No, essentially you just did it. And that's a lot of people need to just do what they set out to do. And in, in your, in your uh, exploration of this, it, it sounds like you were purpose made to do this. Maybe we'll start there um, with purpose, even though it is the last one. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like it, this, this was a point of purpose and in your exploration of purpose, what did you find? Yeah. So to answer the first question, absolutely. And interestingly too, in the writing of the purpose section, which I left to the end for a reason, because I wanted to leave people with an empowerment, not with the, like a quizzical question. You know, I want them mm-hmm. to find the starting block to then begin their own race or begin their own journey or their own adventure, you know, because it's, like I said, what an audacious thing to try to present somebody what their purpose is. That's not for me to do. That's for nobody to do, but for themselves, Mm. which is the whole point. And so to answer your second question, in the process of uh, researching, discovering, writing down and comparing as these thoughts came out, what it really does all come down to, which is the final subsection of that, like the basically last three chapters of the entire book, is it comes down to sovereignty and it is having the autonomy over yourself, over your own minds, firstly, primarily before anybody else. And if anybody else does have any say in it, you get a say in them having a say in it first. And wouldn't you agree that something that has been 
really poorly missing in the world for at least the last three years. I think that it has shown quite vividly through all societies across the world that most people were unempowered and mm. they relied on other powers to tell them what to do. They sit, yes. they sit there and they twiddle their thumbs for two weeks, right? Flatten the curve. And then they twiddle their thumbs for four weeks and six weeks and eight weeks. And it's just, they're asking daddy government and daddy uh, pharma and daddy um, uh, health agency to tell them what to do because yes. they have no autonomy and no idea how to live their own lives when it comes to what matters. And really that's, it's, it's the most important thing. Um, there, the very first quote that I have at the very beginning of the book, and I have quotes all throughout, every chapter starts with a quote, and the very first one for the whole book is two words. That is a quote from Socrates. And it says, know thyself. Mm. And that's what it all comes down to. If you don't, it, you don't have to know yourself. In fact, most people don't. They think that, of course I know myself. I am myself. Who knows me better than me? Well, how well do you know yourself? Did you know that you were going to fail if uh, pressures came down on society on you? Most people would have to answer no at this point because history is history. And they ended up becoming part of the mob. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that they didn't want to do. But because my job was at stake or because my family was at stake or because my friends were at stake or my reputation was at stake, you know, all these things that were the, the sticks and the carrots that forced people, coerced them into doing things that they knew that they didn't want to and probably didn't have to do. But they did it anyways. And, and in so doing, they were probably surprised when they found their own borders of who they were and who they were willing to or how much of themselves they were willing to um, offload to somebody else to take care of. And hopefully this can uh, not come off as an indictment. I don't want to try to come off on a, as a high horse talking down on anybody as much as it is a, a possibility or an opportunity for people to be honest with themselves and learn to know themselves because knowing how to grow or avoid stuff like that that happened in the past in the future is knowing where your weaknesses are. It's the same thing as jujitsu. Like if you don't reassess your own game with honesty, not because you're just going to look at all your highlights and say, aren't, aren't I a badass? I hit that arm bar in tournament. No, you want to see where all your flaws were so that mm. you're not somebody else's highlight next time because if they can take the power away from you, they will. It's the same thing with life in every case. Guys, from here on, my parts of the podcast will be audio only. Head over to Spotify to listen to the entire podcast. This is where we get into the nitty-gritty of the book. So we discuss the book itself, the three pillars of the book, which is what is consciousness, what is reality, and what is purpose. Hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Like, subscribe, share it out. Love you. We had a uh, Zé, Mar Zé Mario Perry, um, who, he's a jiu-jitsu legend, come into the gym the other day and there was a similar item that he talked on, looking at um, your flaws, making sure you create yourself into a monster, a beast, and be able to control that. Uh, and the, it's, a, it's a very good point that people throughout the last few years have been always looking to someone else to fix their problems, even though that they – just say and, you know, say that they're going to do something, but in the end they're like, where's this hero arc? Where is, in America's case, Trump wouldn't have done this or this politician, DeSantis, wouldn't have done this. And talking a little bit about what's out of people's control, do they need to detach? Do you, do, do you, did you look at it when they're looking at their purpose and when they're driving towards their goals? 
Should they be not considering what surrounds them, what is the distraction, what they can't control, as in major political items like, you know, what what happened in the last three three years? Um, yeah. So I know that you're big on Stoics and Stoicism, so this yes. will speak a lot to that ideology as well as Buddhism. Those two um, ideological or philosophical frameworks speak very well to this. And basically, the idea is... The only thing you do have control over is yourself and internal to you, your mind. Your mind is the only thing that nobody else has control over. You wonder why there was mandates and things that had to basically try to force your acquiescence. You didn't get held down in a needle put in your arm. You had to acquiesce. Mm. They needed your permission. They needed your your mind to to do the thing, you know? Um but on top of that, contrary to that or juxtaposed to that, both in the Stoic and in the Buddhist traditions, is you only increase suffering upon yourself by trying to foist that control outside of yourself. So this is the idea of yelling at the waves and getting frustrated that they aren't listening to you. This is what is, is, and you have to let what is do what it does because that's not up to you. Your control is your reaction to it. That speaks to the Stoic side as well as the Buddhists who say that you, the, the highest form of that, um, practice is to be able to suffer and to be calm at the same time because that shows a total self-restraint and a total control of your inner self and at that point i mean there is historic accounts of people monks lighting themselves on fire and staying calm until they died and like that to them is the highest acknowledgement of mastery that even while you're burning to death you have control over your mind to to choose whether or not to react to the outside stimuli Moving into consciousness, what was your exploration of consciousness? First of all, are, are you religious at all? So I, I look at a bunch of different religions as far as frameworks. Now, what's interesting about all of these topics, whether it's consciousness, reality, or even purpose, is every framework that's out there has a version of it that they either prescribe or they'll allow or they'll disallow. And so knowing where you start is a kind of a big thing, which is why I didn't want to really nail down for any of these things. I'm coming from a Muslim standpoint or a Christian standpoint or an atheist standpoint. I want you to be able to start from your own starting block and then ask yourself these questions. The one thing that I definitely did, uh, I wouldn't say over-focus on, but more focus on for the consciousness portion was um, the dualistic standpoint. So for people who don't know, dualism is a it's a framework of what consciousness is that started, I mean, it was before him, but it was really grandfathered by a man named Rene Descartes. And Descartes was a philosopher in the 16th century. And he, uh, basically the idea of dualism is that people are two things, but one thing. They are themselves, which is two things, which is body and mind. And so consciousness is the, the mind side, the spirit side, the ethereal side of what it is to be you. And your body is entirely you, but it's not that. And so in the dualist sense, um, consciousness is technically and strangely exogenous to the human being. It's native to it, but the best uh, analogy that they use in that framework is, is like a radio and a signal in that the radio emits the signal. And if you were just listening to it, you would say the radio is telling you the news or is playing you a song when actually what it is, is it's catching a transmission of a signal. The signal is the actual information. It's, it's what matters to make a radio do what you want a radio to do. 
So without the signal, the radio doesn't do radio things. But without the radio, the signal doesn't get emitted. So it's this, uh, again, dualistic perspective that they are both intrinsic to each other, but actually separate in interesting ways. Can you live on unconscious? This sounds, Can you say sounds that again? weird. Can you live unconscious as in not, not as in knocked out, but living in a way that you don't have a connection to any, um, any part of your higher self and your spirit self? This is an interesting question. So again, it's going to depend on your framework because people will talk about NPCs, people out yes. there that are non-player characters. You know, bots, and mate. Bots. <laughs> yeah, bots. <laughs> yeah. There's something to that. I don't think it's what people think it is in the video game sense that these people simply have no agency and they're running a script that, unless you believe in simulation theory, which is something we get into in the reality area. Like and maybe, I want to get maybe. into it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I would say that it, like most things in the world, it's not a black and white thing. It's probably a, a matter of degrees upon a spectrum of people talk about being awake or how awake are you, you know? Uh, and they yeah. say that in, in all sorts of different ways, depending on what you believe awake is. But it really, it speaks to what you're saying there about an actuation or a uh, self-acknowledgement um, of awareness. So another thing that we kind of have to uh, nail down is what we even think consciousness is. When you say the word consciousness, not everybody thinks the same thing. So sure. in the philosophical sense, what consciousness is, is the experience of what it is to be. And you would say, well, doesn't everything have that? Well, no. Um, in in that sense, in the philosophical sense, and again, this is going to be bound to different frameworks. Buddhists wouldn't believe this. But in the, uh, I say, I'll say atheistic or more modern uh, philosophical sense, um, they say, is there something that it is to be that thing? So is there something that it is to be a rock? Um kind of hard to picture that so probably no probably the rock is not conscious is there something that it is to be a dog yes i can see that i can i can ascribe that um whether that matters or not is a totally different question but at least we know what we're talking about when we're saying consciousness it is what it is to exist to be something and to have an experience so do you know who uh uh, the philosopher chalmers i think it was richard chalmers um he was the one that coined the term the easy and the hard question of consciousness, where in his mind, this was written in 1999 and has basically taken over that space when it comes to uh, philosophy and uh, theory of mind in the human sense, is the easy questions of consciousness has everything to do with the material side of things. So essentially, we're talking to the body in the dualist sense, whereas people like Richard Dawkins would say that consciousness is an effect of a working human brain. And it's it's basically just a derivative effect of higher um, biology. Those are the easy questions as far as Chalmers is concerned is tell me what all the mechanisms are of the human body and you will still be left with what he calls the hard question of why there is experience in that. So you could have an incredibly complex machine. Nowadays, it's very easy to actually consider because we have AI bots that simulate what it is to be humanly conscious. And that's a whole other conversation I get into often on my own podcast. Are they conscious or not? Nobody knows. But in the Chalmers sense, he would say that you know exactly what uh, this program is. You wrote it. You know the mechanisms. You know the computers. You know the electricity. All the parts that it took to get it to where it is right now. And yet we're still left with the hard question of if there is consciousness in that case, in our case, there is consciousness. What is it? Why is it there? And 
in his opinion, you could have all the easy questions answered and you would still be left with why there is consciousness at all. Because you could have all of the biological markers of mourning somebody you loved who died. But the experience of that is something that is, first of all, um, a very conscious and personal experience, but also is technically not necessary to that whole equation. It seems unnecessarily extra to that. And that we experience it should speak to the, um, the externality of that whole thing. So um, in a religious sense, people would talk about a soul. I don't know if those two are, are perfectly paired, to be honest, consciousness and soul, but there's, mm. a, there's a question and a conversation there for sure. There seems to be something else when it comes to the conscious experiential qualia is another word they like to use in philosophy is why do you have experience at all? Because it's not necessary to have it and that you have it is a difference maker from something that doesn't. Consciousness in the woke sense, if we're looking at it from that aspect and being aware of yourself, your surrounding the world and what is being put out into the world, is there a a place where you can be too conscious. For example, if you if you know there's there's shit in your water, if you know there's shit in the air, if you know that you know these these radio waves can get to a certain point where it can fry you, would it? And you need to insulate yourself to try and be as pure as possible. Does it get to a point where it just becomes too much conscious, and you're conscious and aware of everything? There, there absolutely is. And first of all, there's, there's a difference in the terminology we're using here. Yeah. Um, being conscious is a part of consciousness. Um, yes. the, the question of what is consciousness is a different conversation. We've kind of switched here, which is fine. I just wanted to qualify for people who are listening. Yes. Being yes. consciously aware of certain things or not does not necessarily, necessarily mean you are or, or, or do or do not have consciousness. But to speak to your point here, um, I wanted to go to, a part at the very beginning of my book here, I started with a quote, speaking of quotes that I took yeah. from HP Lovecraft. And this uh, speaks very much to what you're saying here, being so cognitively aware of all that there is to be aware of and the overwhelmingness of that. Yes. So you're speaking to just, you're at the wrong end of the spectrum of how consciously aware you are of stuff. You're first talking about NPCs supposedly just do not care or don't seem to have that type of empathic experience. Whereas some people who are just so hyper aware of everything start to become over anxious and worried. Like they get this uh, paralysis by analysis where they just get frozen in the headlights, the fear of the enormity of all of it all. Um, this is a quote that I started the book with and sort of give some, some meaning to what we just said there. It says, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the, pie the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the, from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Right, that's, that's the start? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> really sets this table. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and thank you for um, clarifying that because that, that, that was um, what I was 
trying to get at and it's good to differentiate um, between the two. And look, I can't wait to get started into this book. Moving a little bit more into the reality. So what Mm. is reality, I believe, is a standpoint that you took. Um, I'll pose that question directly. What is reality? What was your exploration down this path? Well, beginning in uh, in consciousness and moving into reality, there's a theme that happens throughout all of that. And it was on purpose. It's to try to disabuse people of the idea that they know what anything is, to be honest. Like the, the more you can knock the firm footing out beneath people to make them look at what's happening around them and reassess things, because we all... I'm not trying to break everybody's sense of stability in the world. Everybody needs a framework to exist on. That's not what I hate about this thing. But the problem is people get so safe within their their little confines they've built for themselves or somebody else has built for them that they never look around to see, firstly, is it right? Secondly, is it uh, whole? Or or thirdly, is it completely wrong? Um, And I'm not here to answer any of those questions. But in the reality portion, the first three chapters are about disabusing you of what you even think is basic reality. Like besides the most of what we know about what is real was learned early in our lives as we sort of traverse this life, trying to figure out how to move within the spatial awareness of the material world. So it's all based on our five major senses and it's our use of them in the material world around us to sort of inform us what is real. Well, that's a great start and it's the most useful foundation to have, which is why everybody starts with that. They need to know how to walk, talk, eat shit, the whole thing, right? This is what it is to exist at the very base level. Thing is, most people never go past that. They think they got it figured out. This is what reality is. Meanwhile, every other thing, both meta, philosophical, scientific, theological that you could plug into that basically expands past that in all sort of directions. Um, scientifically, you could move all the way down or all the way back on the material world. You could go down to the quantum where physics at that level doesn't even make sense. There are quantum interactions that wait for you to observe them before you know what the interaction is going to do. There's things called spooky action where you can have two entangled quanta separate them by any space you want. They've had uh, entangled quanta separated on either side of the globe and affecting one will affect the other at exactly the same time in the same way. Nobody knows how or why. They There are wow. reactions at the quantum that go backwards in time called retrocausality, where half of all quantum effects happen backwards against the arrow of time, which again makes no sense, right? And there's all these things we think are, are hard and fast truths that simply get more murky the more you look into it. Even the fact that we ourselves as a human being right now, we aren't just one thing. Like not even talking about dualism in the meta sense, talking in the scientific sense, we are a a galaxy of about 31 trillion different cells that work in harmony as one thing. Mm. At the very same time, we have 10 to 1 bacteria within our body to each cell. For every cell, 31 trillion of them, there's 10 bacteria, which are 100% non-human. They're not part of us at all. We are a galaxy that is inhabited by aliens. Like it gets weirder and weirder the more you look at it and the more you think about it and you go down below that into um, matter and what it is. Um, You're at the atomic level. Think about what an atom is. It's got a nucleus. It's got electrons and protons that spin Mm. around it. That structure 
is more empty space than it is matter. And nobody knows what that space is. It's not air because air is matter. You know, the, there's nothing as far as we know within that space. So it's actually correct for you to say that you're more nothing than you are something. And it's also correct to say that you're more inhuman than you are human. And you see, like, it gets weirder and weirder the more you look at it all the way down, but then all the way up as well, as things seem to fractalize at different levels of experience and observation. And in from that frame point, when we start with that, and then we start asking again, what is reality? Well, now we can start plugging in like a half a dozen different possible constructs of what reality is that don't even speak to each other. It could be one of any of them or none of them, but they really like all of them are up for debate, including simulation theory, including cosmopsychism. The whole universe in the in the Hindu sense is one consciousness experiencing itself or uh, all the way back to the Big Bang in the material sense. Is everything just a derivative uh, sum of variables that happened from one explosion? Like there's all these different possibilities of what reality is. But what it really comes down to in, in my assessment, and I hope the book leads people to this too, is that we simply don't know. And for people to say they do, that should be a marker of someone you can't trust, or at least someone that doesn't uh, do the work to be honest enough to actually look into things. And having having that perspective um, of, of how expansive reality can actually be. If the masses was to look at things this way, which it, the fabric of rea- reality itself seems to be changing, you know, with um, the, especially the push for women are men and men are women, right? The, the, that's just a baseline fabric of reality, which biologically has shifted which seems to be shifted in a mainstream sense isn't that a tipping point for the masses to leave themselves vulnerable for you know complete something to take over an alien race to come in or if we don't have a basis of reality of togetherness where our foundation is strong wouldn't that just leave us exposed? Yeah. So this is a very good, very good philosophical and theological question because there are two things that are basically either ends of the same spectrum. One is you, uh, on the farthest end of what you're saying right here, nothing is real. We have no anchors on anything and anything could come in and fill that vacuum. And again, if you don't have the sovereignty of yourself and the autonomy of your own mind, you'd be like, yeah, I guess that is real. And that is now yeah. everything that, that it, uh, informs my idea of what reality is. And a lot of people fall into that at some point along their lives. And then the very other opposite end of that is a structure that is so hard and firm and brittle and unmoving that you get a cult that you aren't allowed to step one toe outside of. And this is what we see with like fundamentalist Islam and fundamentalist Christians and whatever it is that does like these cults where people get killed for leaving it, stuff like that. And I think that the proper most, um, to get the benefit of both of those things, because there's obvious benefits and obvious detriments to both, yeah. but you can't be devoid of one over the other. Otherwise you're going to fall to the total detriment of one. Um, and I think that the, the right flexibility is somewhere in the middle and it's not for me to say. And I think again, it, it should be an inter, uh, interpersonal and, um, personal, uh, exper- um, what's the word, uh, exploration to find out what, feels right to you because this comes back to the whole purpose portion of the book is most of what you're going to find that is going to inform you and lead you towards what is 
your own personal purpose because everybody else is everybody is different you know and the the person who's going to be able to find it out the best is you and it's going to come down to these questions too and i really want to have people ask themselves that question in the stoic sense not as a rhetorical but give me an answer you know and if you don't have an answer that's that's an avenue that could be filled with something else and you need to be aware of that if you don't have a good answer um be aware that other people are going to come along and try to shoehorn an answer into that spot for you so it it really behooves you to to maintain that sovereignty of that part of who you are until you have a firm foundation that you feel secure to fill that void with yourself. I think it has to be filled by yourself on all of these different questions. It shouldn't be whatever the public is believing right now or whatever your professor is telling you right now. Um, be honest with yourself. And again, the buck starts and stops with you. And it, you don't have to let um, your, you don't have to do the work. This is difficult work to do. You can let somebody else tell you what is or isn't real and what is and isn't true. And uh, I guess if that's the case, just don't be surprised if you have no uh, autonomy over yourself left by the end. What is simulation theory and how does that uh, fit into this chapter? Yeah, so simulation theory is a fun one. Um, it's kind of the modern version of um, of what the Hindus believe with that cosmopsychism I kind of played with a little bit earlier. But the whole idea of simulation theory, this is basically Nicholas Bostrom's baby. So if you uh, read any of his stuff, he's the one that coined the term simulation hypothesis. And his hypothesis is as such, is that because of the way that computer technology is going right now, we are on the precipice of what he calls the uncanny valley, which is at a certain point, computer simulations are going to become so hard to differentiate between reality and what is simulation that at that point, we're in this uncanny valley where we can't really tell which is which. And beyond that is something he calls a simulation point where humanity has the capability to build a holistic simulation, which you could go into and not know the difference of whether you're in the simulation or not. Think of the matrix, that kind of thing. And at that very point, he calls a simulation point. Mathematically, it's more likely that we're already in a simulation than we're the ancestors of all simulations. That's a scary thought. (laughs) And, and cause I did, there's, there's with the VR stuff and I don't know, in the VR sense, the graphics are so bad, Loki. I don't know if, um, you know, (laughs) we, we'd be in a letter rather than, uh, in the beginning, but it was very inception when I watched this video of this guy who went into the video game, set up his apartment the same in real life in the video game and then started playing a video game in his apartment and that was his like day to day. I was like, where are we headed? What is this? What is this guy <laughs> doing? But um, it's a, it's an interesting theory. Do you, do you conceptualize that we could already be in a simulation? Um, my own personal thoughts on this, I touch on it a little bit in the book. I try not to interject my own thoughts enough uh, to allow other people to, to sort of figure out their own, but mm-hmm. I can see it as a probability. I don't personally believe that that's the case. Now, now I'll put it to you this way. I do believe that we're in some form of simulation, but it's not exactly in the Bostromian sense. I don't think that mm-hmm. 
like to believe that we're in some sort of created architected superstructure actually makes a lot of sense to me. This is like the creation story of Abrahamic religions. Okay. Yes. It's like God is the architect that built this simulation for us to live within that's complete with physics and parameters and exactly what you'd expect in a computer program. You have all the parameters of what is the physics for Grand Theft Auto? Do I take fall damage here? All that stuff was built into what it is to exist in their paradigm. So really in this interesting way, um, I think that Bostrom is hitting at something that theologians have been trying to touch for thousands and thousands of years is this chicken and egg problem mm. of where did we come from? And if there is an architect that started us, where did the architect come from? And so you get into this strange, like who started it kind of thing. And uh, although simulation theory is actually pretty widely uh, accepted in a lot of uh, like theoretical circles in the academies and in science, it uncomfortably reintroduces the chicken and egg problem because if we're in a simulation right now, who is the ancestor simulation or the ancestor uh, people, entities, and where did they come from? What what was their ancestor, etc.? It doesn't seem to make sense in that derivative uh, way of thinking of things, which is why I think that that derivative model is wrong, is that mm. At the very beginning, at the core of what it is to have something created, that first creator cannot be bound to the same parameters. So I have a line in the book, if I can remember to paraphrase it properly, where I say that we we too often project our own limitations onto the ethereal. So we think that because the architect or God or the one or or the beginning created us therefore something must have created him but what if the act of creating began with him and it was unnecessary for him to be created because he's outside of what is that simulation that he created being created and having a beginning is tied to physics and mass and entropy and all of the things that it is within i call it a terrarium in this terrarium of what he built he built the physics that govern it so why do you think that he should be subject to those physics including causality including time including things that we think are necessary for an existence of an ancestor maybe they're just not and in, in that way first of all we can't even really conceive what that means because what can existing outside of time even mean everything we do is tracked in time you know how can you do anything because every action is clocked in time but if that is possible then again who are we to prescribe our limitations on to that mm. so in that way i think that there is a simulation going on that was built or architected by something but not in the bostromian sense where this is just like a computer simulation of another ancestor generation that built us out of computer out of computers that seems a little uh un uncreative i'll put it that way because the bistro the bastrom bastromian how do you pronounce his name bastromian bastromian yeah, yeah um he's so he the creator would need to be bound by the simulation itself of the creation where the simulation that you you're discussing right now, which I agree with is the um, being that is outside of itself. It's in contingent to anything, which is God. And wouldn't that prove that simulation theory isn't real? It doesn't, it doesn't, it can't essentially hold itself up if the creator of would be bound by the simulation itself. Within, again, the Bostromian sense, yes, which is why they don't espouse that. They, they're they kind of like, they try to hit this middle ground between um, theological architecture 
where you have a creator, something built the simulation. It has to, right? Because of causality. And they kind of straddle the fence with one leg on the other side saying that, well, obviously the ancestor to what we are in this simulation started from the Big Bang, which is kind of a hilarious presupposition to throw in there because you don't know what is outside of this simulation if we're in one. To presume that it's anything to do with our universe that's in here is like saying that um, outside of the, the structure of Super Mario, everything else must look like Super Mario. You know, like there's yeah. no connection necessary between those two paradigms. So they, they, I, they're accepted in modern science because they straddle that line it's like well the big bang obviously started everything and then because of that we got to this simulation that we don't even know we're in right now i'm like if we don't know that we're in a simulation but we actually are who are we to say what the actual the level above us is like at all in any way shape or form do you believe in multiverse sis well, this this is another part of the reality conversation that I get into because I talk about the quantum and we go into something that is called uh, the simulated multiverse. Mm. And uh, I, I lean heavily on the work of a professor from MIT right now who I believe is the only accredited, he's the only one that that offers accredited courses in simulation theory. This is really? actually a course that, that he does at MIT. His name's Rizwan Verk. And he comes from the video game industry. So he actually has a lot of computational knowledge and uh, logic forming to base his his uh, ideas around. And he goes deep into quantum and what he sees when he sees things like superposition, like a quanta that can be in two positions at once. This is the Schrodinger's cat problem where, mm -hmm. uh, say, a quanta, uh, let's say a photon can be either left spinning or right spinning. This is simplistic. This isn't exactly it, but just for the sake yeah. of analogy, it can be yeah. left or right. Um, it doesn't choose one or the other until it's observed. And in that meantime, it's actually considered both. It's not considered considered neither. It's considered both at the same time, which is what they call a superposition. And this is where Schrodinger, who was a, a math, mathematical physicist, a theoretical physicist in the quantum area in like the 1950s, he uh, came up with this analogy, which became a famous equation, the Schrodinger equation, which you need to do any uh, realistic math with at the quantum level. He said, if you, a good analogy is if you had a box and inside that box, there was a cat and there was also inside that box, a, a little bit of poison for that cat to eat. And you knew that inside the box was poison and a cat, but outside the box, that's, that's all, you know, there's no sound, there's no movement coming from the box. So until you open the box, it is philosophically correct to presume the cat is both dead and alive because they're equally possible. Realistically, it's going to be one or the other in that scenario, but this is the analogy for a superposition, is they are literally two things at once until it's observed, until you open the box and you find out, oh, it took a form. It took the left form. Interestingly, at the quantum level, that is randomized. There doesn't seem to be a pattern to whether it chooses one over the other, which is super confusing to a lot of uh, uh, physicists. But he would say that <laughs> this is going to get really deep, and the book explains it better, so I'll try to not water it down too much, but not go too deep down the rabbit hole is in the process of a superposition choosing which, which way it's going to go. Um, that the idea is that for every choice that happens, that is what our universe has. So now it has a left thing in this universe, but in, in this other person's, um, what what ended up turning into what we call the MWI, the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which, by the way, was believed uh, very heavily in the 80s by people, including uh, Stephen Hawking. Like yeah. he said, it's uh, it's apparently obvious 
that the many worlds interpretation is correct. But you say that, it's like, okay, well, it's correct. Well, wait until you hear it because it's the stupidest thing you've ever heard. It makes no sense whatsoever. And that's not to say it's not right, which is what makes things crazy because the math seems to work and it convinces people like Stephen Hawking, where he says that at the point of superposition, choosing one over the other, actually what's happening is it's choosing both, but you only see one in your universe and an entire other universe spawns off where it chose the other way. So this is like the the... Um, Doctor Strange multiverse scenario where every possible action has an entire universe based off of that interaction, interactional choice. Now, as crazy and as stupid and as impossible as that sounds, Einstein balked at this. Bohr balked at this. He said, there's no way, even though the math works out, I cannot believe that an entire universe exists for every single quantum interaction that's ever happened in two directions. I can't believe that. Um, even though that's that's crazy, what Rizwan Verk brings up in his simulated multiverse theory is that what if what's happening is an A-B test in the computational sense where you run scenarios for both possible outcomes and based off of what your determinist um, parameters are, will select for which one it would rather prefer. And maybe it, it runs the entirety of the other one in the background or it stores it as data to be pulled back later. And he starts bringing in things like Mandela effect and things like deja vu where you could reintroduce old data. Oh, we went too far down path B. We should have chose path A and they reintroduce it. And like, he's like at the actual computational information theory level that tracks. So that's what we wow. look at when we're talking about the simulated multiverse. That breaks my brain. and that's a very basic explanation of it (laughs) oh and you get deeper into oh mate in the book you get deeper uh, okay yeah yeah that that yeah that hurt my brain a little (laughs) but it's great it's great that's that's what i love um writing this book going down these different pathways and different thoughts and ideas what surprised you like, was there something that you, you were like like researching? You, it just caught you a little off guard that you, you know, it could be a simple thing. It, it, it could be a complete idea like this one that just really blew my mind. What mm. caught you off guard and you were like, wow, this, this is a revelation that I never thought really about before. Yeah, I got a good one for you. And this one, it's it speaks to all three of those pillars to consciousness, reality and purpose. And it is one of the, the tenets of a philosopher from the 1950s by the name of Gilles Deleuze. He was a French philosopher. And he said something that absolutely disabused all of the Stoics and all of the uh, classic philosophers of time who rested all of their laurels on uh, ontology. And what ontology is in this scenario is finding a priori truths and working out from there. So you're going to find what is true, and then that informs you about what is real. You can only find out what is real by finding out what is true. This makes perfect sense, right? This is what most of philosophy is based on, is logic, 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 ontological trees. Yes. Um, He said, and everybody in that field screeched and punched the air when he said it, but he said that reality is more an act of creation than anything. And when he said that, he had to first wait for all the jaws to drop and the mic to drop and pick it back up to start talking about what he meant when he said, your reality is more an act of creation. Well, this is exactly what we talk about at the beginning of the book and into the reality section Mm -hmm. is that the only way for you to know what is real out there is based upon the information that you have about it. 
So um, you may say, well, isn't that what uh, Socrates and Aristotle were saying when they say find a priori truths and work out from there? Yes, but no, because the absence of them will still produce a reality. And it will be a perception of what is real that is either incorrect or actually builds out in a way that is correct to you, even though it isn't correct to someone else. And there's a great example of this tribe in Nambia who, um, interestingly, there was a, uh, a historian that found by reading old uh, literature, starting with Homer's The Odyssey, he found that there was a strange thing happening in that literature when it came to colors. And um, when he looked at it specifically, he was like, they don't have a color blue anywhere in this literature. And they're describing the sea and the sky, and they're using colors that don't describe that. They describe the sea as a blood wine sea and the sky as gray. And there was never the color blue, and he thought that that was odd. And then he looked back through all of the ancient literature of other civilizations, including the Chinese, including the, um, uh, the Germanic, including like all over across the world. The only one he could find that had a color blue was the Egyptians, who it turns out had a, uh, a flower that c- created a dye that was natural to that Nile area that was blue. And so they had a word for what that was. Now, why does this matter? Well, it turns out that until you have something to tie what a thing is to the real world, you honestly don't perceive it. So coming back to this tribe in Nambia, they are one of the last remaining civilizations on planet Earth that their language does not possess a descriptor for the color blue. So why would that matter? You show them a blue thing, aren't they going to say what it is? Um, they cannot see, they do not perceive blue anywhere. And they ran a test where they had 12 squares in a circle. And one of those squares was vividly blue and the rest of them were green. They could not tell which one was not green. They, they all failed that test. Sometimes they would pick it after a few strained efforts. It's like that one looked, the rest of us looked like any two-year-old could say that is obviously blue. It, there's no comparison. Interestingly, though, in their language, they have more words for the color green. And so they ran the test again with 12 blocks, 12 squares in a circle, and they picked a different square to make the off color, but it was a slightly different shade of green than the rest of them. Every single person in that tribe picked the off green one as fast as anybody would have picked the blue. And interestingly, again, I looked at these pictures and I got it wrong. I, I didn't select the right green block that was off, but obviously I knew which blue one there was. So the difference between my reality, my understanding and the perception of what I know is real is so different at the material level from these people based off of a word that describes something that in that sense, coming back to Gilles Deleuze, my reality is an act of creation that is different than theirs. And if that's true, and it is about the color blue not existing for these people, they do not see it in the, in the sense that they experience what it is to be blue. How many other things do we have that's just built into our framework of what reality is that is just grossly wrong or incorrect, but it serves us enough to build a reality? There's not a gene that allows them not to see a particular thing or, or something along those lines. It wouldn't be because no. then they'd have to be all incested. So it doesn't really no. make sense but, on that um, end. Just culturally speaking, they were uh, they were basically a demonstration of why every other culture in the past had no no word in their language for the color blue because they just didn't see it. And it just wow. seems historically it's one of the last colors of any civilization to actually appear in their lexicon. It's Incredible. almost always the last color. Incredible.
Mate, you've been, yeah, you've blown my mind across this. I can't wait to get dug into this book. Um, you can essentially get it everywhere. Yeah. You can get it in Amazon in Australia. Mm-hmm. You can get it in booktopia.com.au. And just before we uh, finish off, in, in your research, who's some people that you say that the listeners should go and take a look at their work? Because I'm sure you would have come across. You've named a few, uh, Rishwan Virk, uh, Jill Deleuze. Mm-hmm. I'm probably butchering mm-hmm. the pronunciations, but who's a couple of people that uh, you think uh, would be a good good read? It would all depend on what parts of the book resonate the most with whoever the reader is. So I've had some people who have read it got back to me and they say, I love the middle section more than the first and the last. And in that case, in the reality section, if that's what really vibes with you, then there are going to be people like Nicholas Bostrom. There's going to be people like Gilles Deleuze. There's going to be people like Rizwan Verk. There's going to be people like... Um, DeWitt or Bohr or Einstein that are really going to, and I mean, there's, there's, uh, I know it sounds very scientific about the reality portion. There's also metaphysical in there as well. Like we go into the, the Hindu beliefs through the, um, what is Brahman and, uh, that we go through the, um, um, hermetic beliefs as well about uh, manifestation and other ways that reality could be affected by different things. So depending on what part really resonates with you, I mean, every single chapter is just an entry point into a universe of different ideas from different people. So I would just take that that whatever the topic is and plug it into either Amazon or Audible or Google or whatever defines who is the best in those areas. Amazing. Uh, the book will be in the description below so you can order it straight from there. Um, yeah. Uh, audiobook coming too. The audiobook should be up in a couple of weeks. How was doing the audio? That was that a little. It was weird. It, did, yeah. It's, it's different than doing a podcast because you're basically acting. You're not allowed to go off script. You can't say, um, you know, there's, it's much more cut and paste than it is just having a conversation, but it ended up being like, it took me over 20 hours to record and it ended up distilling down to about seven total hours from start to finish. 20 hours to record. So essentially, I guess it would have been like rereads and do you have to enunciate some words and things like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of things I had to redo because I got the pronunciation wrong or, you know, I want a different inflection to try to pull out what you're trying to say. And it's, it's its own art for sure. I have a lot of respect for people that do this for a living because I'm definitely not that person, but I pulled it off. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, you can find Drew on the Social Disorder podcast, um, the Because Jiu Jitsu page, um, Drew.Weatherhead. Um, anything, uh, any other areas that they can find you, mate? No, that's the best. The the book for my thoughts, the podcast for, uh, you know, all sorts of other topics. We talk about uh, geopolitics. We talk about philosophy. Uh, we talk about religion. We talk about all sorts of different sh- shit on there. I know that uh, your listeners probably vibe very much with mine. So, um, yeah, you can get my thoughts through all those. Or if you're just here for the jujitsu, I've got lots of tutorials as well as the memes. So lots to choose from. Last thoughts on Trudeau. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Drew. It's been a pleasure, brother, as always. Peace.